The next case was presented by Dr. Mudad. This lady is a 62-year-old previous smoker, 60-pack year history of smoking, quit about 20 years before presentation, was initially seen in July of 07 and was found to have a clinical stage 2 non-small cell lung cancer with negative mediastinum. She went to surgery and postoperatively she was found to have a pathologic stage 3A with microscopic mediastinal lymph node involvement. Her pathology was adenocarcinoma. She was sent to me for adjuvant therapy, and she was placed on adjuvant chemotherapy with cisplatin docetaxel. Did have significant side effects from treatment with GI disturbances, predominantly colitis. What's your general practice in terms of choice of adjuvant therapy? I strongly believe that cisplatin should really be the platinum of choice for adjuvant therapy. In the second agent with it, I tend to favor docetaxel. I've had a lot of comfort using the combination. I've had a lot of practice using it. But I think a platinum with docetaxel or another taxane being taxol or cisgemcitabine is pretty tough in terms of thrombocytopenia. How about your view on this, Vince? Well, I was really pleased to hear, you know, that cisplatin was being used in the community because I know it's harder to give and you sometimes have people looking at you. But I think the greatest body of data is for cisplatin in the adjuvant setting, if not the only data, except for perhaps the CALGB study and the 1Bs. I will use cisplatin, and I commonly use venerelbine, although I think one could make the argument, as we talked about this morning, that since cisplatin and docetaxel was superior to cisplatin and venerelbine in advanced disease in the TAX-326, that by extension, it's certainly reasonable to use cisplatin docetaxel. So she gets through her adjuvant therapy and gets back to where she started? Exactly, exactly. And on routine follow-up, she was found to have on a PET-CT scan bilateral lung nodules, Now, at the same time, she has always had on a CT previously an abnormality in the right kidney and was sent to urology, was worked up with ultrasounds, MRIs, and it was felt that that kidney abnormality was non-cancerous. However, when her PET scan showed lung nodules, that kidney abnormality also became hot on PET CT. Hmm. So the question came up, are we dealing with a second cancer? Could she have renal cell that's metastasized to the lung? And she was sent to thoracic surgery and had a VATS-guided biopsy of one of the lung nodules, and that came back lung cancer. So now we're dealing with somebody who has a stage 4 disease. What was the histology? Adenocarcinoma. And how did they differentiate the fact that it was probably lung cancer? Well, I mean, obviously it was not renal cells, so it didn't have the typical picture of any renal cell. It wasn't clear cells. It was an adeno by histology and then special stains, TTF1 and other cytokeratin and other markers. How reliable are those markers, Vince? I think they're operator-dependent to some extent as far as interpretation. But I think TTF1 is positive in 75% or 80% of lung adenos, less commonly positive in squamous or small cells. And you do see a subset of lung cancer patients who have synchronous renal lesions, both tumors that probably have an enhanced risk by having smoked. And oftentimes we can put the possible kidney cancer on the back burner once we're convinced that morphologically the lung tumor looks similar to the original lung tumor. So what was her performance status at that point? was excellent. The lady works full-time. She's an administrative assistant. She drives to work completely, at that time, really not symptomatic from her lung lesion. Right. What did you do at that point? So I decided then to treat her with the first-line chemotherapy for a stage 4 patient. And at that time, you know, was fresh right after the ECOG 4599 study. And 
uh, put it on carboplatin, paclitaxel, and avastin. After two cycles, I usually restage patients. A PET CT showed progressive disease. So we then moved to a second line, and I started her on single agent Alimta, but also decided to continue Avastin. So any I think thoughts about that, Vince? We discussed this, and we both knew that there was no compelling evidence, if any evidence, that one should continue Avastin at progression. But I'd have to say our clinical intuition both might be that here's a lady who's been rapidly recurred after aggressive adjuvant therapy, rapidly progressed on first-line cytotoxic therapy. If there's any chance that individuals don't really become resistant to Avastin, and rather it's just to the chemotherapy component per se, and that Avastin can sensitize to subsequent chemo, I thought it was very reasonable to give that with Olympta, especially since the doublet had been well studied for toxicity and safety. What about a cetuximab combination at that point? Well, I think at that time, the data that on was cetuximab, before the cetuximab. It was before the cetuximab right. data, so really it wasn't the first thing to think of. If she presented today at that point, Vince, would you have thought about cetuximab or still going with the chemo or the pemetrexad bev? I think that absent any knowledge of the Achilles heel of her tumor or molecular characteristics of her tumor, I probably would have used pemetrexad, an approved drug in that setting, with bevacizumab. We don't have much data that I'm aware of except a limited data set in radiation on cetuximab and pemetrexate together. Are you using cetuximab in your practice right now? Are you staining what you're using tissue biomarkers to try to make that decision? We've discussed that, and I think we're both getting a slight ramp up in our cetuximab use. I think the biggest challenge for me was finding, since it's a weekly drug or at most biweekly, finding the regimen with which it's most compatible. And I think platinum gemcitabine-based regimen works nicely, and there's pretty good data for it. So I am using more of that combination in first line, particularly, of course, in the patients with squamous cell carcinoma of the lung. I have personally reserved cetuximab for patients who are not eligible for Avastin right. if I wanted to use a targeted therapy with chemo. And obviously, after the flex data has been out, prior to that, I have not used it. Have you been able to get it reimbursed? So far, I would say yes. And you haven't had any problems with that, Vince? We were asked once when I wanted to use the platinum gemcitabine combination to provide some evidence for them. We mm-hmm. sent them the randomized phase two from the JCO mm-hmm. with platinum gemcitabine with or without cetuximab, and they approved it. So what happened next with her? So on Avastin and Alimta, she actually had stable disease. So we felt that we may have hit something that has worked, and she completed six cycles, tolerated treatment very well, continued to work full-time, Pretty much asymptomatic. Any so. problems with the BEV? No. Hypertension? No hypertension, no proteinuria. So no. were you on any subjective signs? Or I guess she was asymptomatic. She was to asymptomatic. Start with. It was pretty much really we were treating what the PET scan is showing us. Interesting. Yeah. And throughout this whole process really has been asymptomatic. Hmm. So after finishing six cycles, despite having had stable disease halfway through the treatment, after six cycles, her PET scan did show progressive disease. Very early, but progressive disease. So now going down the line, Tarsiva was the next agent that I've decided to use. She was started on Tarsiva, did very well, except for very rare episodes of diarrhea that was easily controlled and a mild facial rash that was also easily controlled with topical hydration. And unfortunately, after being on Tarsiva for three months, her PET-CT scan did show again progressive disease. This is, again, we're now a lady who has really had three lines of chemotherapy who still has a performance status ECOG of zero. I mean, totally asymptomatic, works full-time. What's her life situation, her family? She lives with her husband, who also works full-time. She has two kids. One of her daughters lives abroad. They come and visit. She has traveled and visited with them. So 
She's pretty active, very active woman and very good social support. How often do you see, Vince, somebody who's asymptomatic for metastatic disease going through multiple, it sounds a little bit like breast cancer. I don't really associate that so much with lung cancer. Yeah, this was unusual in that sense. Usually, I think you'll hear with the fourth line of therapy, one does see some symptoms of disease. I think with increased sensitivity of our different screening and staging tests, we will see it more with first line. But as one progresses, it's certainly likely you'd see symptoms second and third line. So what happened next? So I've decided at that time to look down at what agents she has not been exposed to and she has not seen gemcitabine, she has not seen navalbine. Typically, when it gets to fourth or fifth line, I usually use single agent. Having met the patient, Vince will probably agree. She's very aggressive, wanted to really be aggressive. Since she was asymptomatic, we decided to use a doublet at this time, even though I would say this is not standard of care. And I gave her navalbine and gemcitabine. She did extremely poorly on that. She really started having severe symptoms from the treatment, a significant neutropenia that caused her to miss navalbine on several weeks. She describes gemcitabine as really, really bad, <laughs> although this is not the typical reaction to gemcitabine, but she has significant what she describes as gas pains, esophageal pain, just did not want to continue with this kind of regimen. Still no symptoms from the tumor? At this time, she was starting to become short of breath, typically with moderate exertion, moderate to severe exertion, not with minimal exertion. And we were, again, at this point, starting to decide, well, where do we go next? And at this point, I've talked to her that this is time to consider an investigational agent, probably a phase one or a phase two trial. And I have sent her for a second opinion for a vaccine trial for patients who have failed other agents, specifically in lung cancer. She has been evaluated. Unfortunately, the vaccine trial is not ready for her yet because it's going through some IRB issues. And while she's waiting to go on that trial, after consultation with the second opinion and the patient, we've decided to try another targeted agent, which is not really approved in lung, and that's Nexavar. Nexavar has been studied in lung. Sunitinib has been studied in lung. For some reason, decided to go with Nexavar, really no specific scientific background. And she was started on Nexavar about three weeks ago. She reports that she was starting to have some pain in her back and posterior chest wall. And when she started Nexavar, about five days later, her pain subsided or almost completely subsided. And she was really very encouraged about that. She, however, about two weeks into it, started developing the hand and foot syndrome with painful calluses on her hands and her feet. We've dropped the dose for a few days to half and her symptoms improved, and she went back to the original dose. And we saw her today, almost three and a half weeks into Nexafar, tolerating full dose again, still feels that her pain is better, but she's clearly short of breath. She doesn't think it's worse than before. She has shortness of breath with, I would say, minimal exertion now, but she still works full time. What was your impression of her today, Vince? I sense that this lady is getting increasingly symptomatic from her lung cancer, who is wrestling with some of the issues that face her. There were a couple of particularly challenging social issues that Raj and I spoke about with her. And one of them was that she has no real disability plan. So she said she's going to die working at her desk. And that was a rather stark statement from her. And apparently Raj has been trying to reach out to her and offer her some interactions with the social worker, see if there's anything that could be done about this, because I was concerned that she may not be able to work too much longer. 
And I told her that there's some other things supportively that could be done that certainly corticosteroids frequently ameliorate some of the dyspnea our patients have. And she was taking some Percocet and noticed that that helped her dyspnea. And I said, well, there's, you know, drugs in that family that can work well and might actually keep you working. If that's really the driving thing you need to focus on at this time. I think the social issue really is a big issue. I mean, this is a patient who works full time who her disability clause is that she has six months wait before her disability kicks in. She cannot support herself for six months without an income. Hmm. And, you what know, about her spouse? Well, her spouse cannot support her and the family, I think, with his job. And he also has his own medical issues. Was anybody with her today? Was he there? Uh, no, she usually comes by herself. Occasionally, her husband would come with her. When her daughter visits from overseas, she comes with her. Hmm. She actually went and visited her daughter this past holiday season and doesn't think that she can make that trip again and again. Hmm. What about serafinib and sunitinib, Vince? What do we know about that in lung cancer? So serafinib has been studied in a couple of settings. There was a phase two trial reported at ASCO in 06 or 07 by Gatzmeyer and colleagues where there were no objective responses. There were a couple of patients who had a seeming biologic effect with cavitation of their tumors. And then more recently at ASCO last year, there was the trial that Joan Schiller presented the randomized discontinuation trial where serafinib did lead to a slight prolongation in median PFS. Sunitinib, on the other hand, has been studied as a single agent and also presented at ASCO by Mark Sosinski and others and does lead to some objective regressions and is now being studied in a maintenance trial in CILGB. And so I would say there's clearly some evidence of biologic activity. If you ask me to lay my nickel down, I'd say sunitinib might be slightly more active as far as at least rapid reductions in tumor burden, but there's no established role. It's always tricky to try to figure this out. You have a patient who wants something done. You really don't have any good options. I mean, do you think either one or both of these drugs are reasonable non-protocol options? I think in the right patient, absent a clinical trial, they're reasonable to consider. It is a difficult situation. How do you think she would respond to the idea of not getting active anti-tumor therapy or hospice-type care? She would absolutely not go for that. I mean, she is a very, very strong-willed person, and she you know, obviously always is looking for something and sends me links and emails about what about this and what about that. And she has a lot of hope regarding the clinical trial of the vaccine. I have mixed feelings about that, but at least that's something that she has as a goal. And what we've decided, obviously, if, if with the next evaluation, which will be in three weeks, her tumor is stable, then we're just going to continue with serafinib as long as it works, if it works. If she showed up at Memorial, are there any trials there that she might be eligible for? Yeah, well, what I'd try to do in this lady, she's somebody who'd had a resection, so she's got a lot of tumor. I would try to genotype her. She has an aggressive tumor. She was a big smoker. She might well have a KRAS mutation or maybe a BRAF mutation. And we have some trials of agents that at least offer some attempt to target to those mutations. So we have a MEK inhibitor in trial. We have a BRAF inhibitor in trial. We had a trial for patients with KRAS mutations. So at least to try to increase the pretest probability of seeing some meaningful biologic effect rather than telling her you're going to go into an unselected phase one trial and these drugs have a 1% response rate in patients like yourself, there you're really hard-pressed to say why she should do that beyond sunitinib or serafinib. We've heard a lot about BRAF and colon cancer. I'm not sure I've heard too much about it in lung cancer. Well, it occurs in maybe 3% of adenocarcinomas of the lung, so number-wise a significant number of patients, and does not occur, generally speaking, with KRAS or EGFR mutations. 
And it's something that we will routinely screen for now in our patients who walk in the door and are screening for. 